when we say Shakespeare tra tragedy, is that we know something bad is going to happen, but there's no way to stop it. It's both sides being motivated, manipulated is the wrong word, motivated by nationalism, populism, by some extreme ideas. And uh, uh, both sides have the same type of uh, top leader. I'm Brian Mose, a farmer living in Florence, South Dakota, and you're listening to the Vance Crow Podcast. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm glad you're here. Today, we talked with Dr. Zhang Wang, who was my professor in graduate school. He's one of those people that I encountered, and I had no idea how big of an impact he would have on my life. But after taking his introduction to negotiations class, I realized this is the type of skill that if you can hone it, you can actually change the world. And so I spent hours and hours with Dr. Wang. We became very close. We had many lunches together. We would edit articles together. We even worked on a book. Well, he wrote a book and I gave him a lot of feedback on it. Over the years, it gave me an opportunity to elevate my education far beyond just what my graduate degree was. I was able to have somebody that I could bounce ideas off of, somebody that saw the world in a slightly different way than I did, and somebody that was always open to asking, what do you think about this? And can you think harder about it? So we're going to get to that interview in just a second. I'm really excited about it. But during the interview, you'll hear us mention the Articulate Ventures Network. This is a place I set up for people that wanted to support the podcast and people that want to be meeting other people that listen to the podcast or maybe getting some classes on how to become a tangibly better communicator. If you're interested in joining this group, just know that you can join and immediately start doing things like the book club or virtual reality experiences that we're trying out. All of this is an experiment to figure out how can we create a space where people can come, practice, get new ideas, and become the type of communicator that allows them to express their full humanity, whether that's in the professional context or all the way out into just having better conversations with the people around you. So if you're interested, join the Articulate Ventures Network, link below. And now let's get to the interview with Dr. Zhang Wang. Director, Professor of the Center for Peace Studies at the Seton Hall University School of Diplomacy, Dr. Zhang Wang, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Very happy to join you. Really. So this is a great reunion because uh, you were my mentor and teacher in graduate school, somebody that had a profound impact on the way that I understood how people interacted with one another, how they shared information, how they cooperated, and what happens when it breaks down. And so we could talk about anything going on in the world, but you actually have a very specialized knowledge, not just of negotiations and conflict, but also with U.S.-China relations. And we were having a conversation before we got started about the difference between the perception of masks in the U.S. and China. And I thought that this would be a very interesting place because I think most Americans imagine that the Chinese wear masks because they live in a dictatorship that tells them they have to and that they're very compliant. And so they see that and they think, well, we want the opposite of that. What's your take on this? Okay, first, I'm very happy to join you. And it's uh, nothing is uh, happier than that to join a former student and uh, saying you are doing very well. And to some extent, I think now we are kind of like colleagues. We, because we work on something very similar. 
We are our, both of our, our work is trying to helping other people to be better understood, right? So, like uh, you mentioned, my a, a big part of my job is to uh, help the people in the U.S. and China better understand each other. Uh, so the face mask is a very interesting question. Once, do you mind if I ask you, so do you wear face mask regularly recently or when, if, if, that, if you do so, when was your first time to wear face mask during the coronavirus? I am deeply resistant to wearing the face mask because, you know, I believe that you see so much of people's emotional reactions by their faces. Mm-hmm. So I have avoided going to all places where I don't have to go. And then if I'm in a place where there's somebody that asks me like they own a business, I wear one. So probably three times in the last four months. But I'd never leave my house. I'm, I'm almost always here or meeting people outdoors. Okay. Okay. Yeah, but... Uh, uh... Do you agree that um, uh, face masks are from your reading, from the information you get that uh, wearing face mask is really actually helpful and has been effective, especially if we talk about some of the East Asian countries, they are doing better if we're trying to compare than people in, in the U.S., European countries, one of the reasons maybe is because wearing face masks. Most people wearing face masks. Yeah, I think that a lot of people are. And I find mm. myself thinking on the one hand, I really want to wear a mask. If I thought that mm. it was healthier, I want my people that are around my wife who's pregnant to wear one. But mm. I have this like deep-seated mm. feeling that I'm doing something wrong if Uh I uh, submit to wearing a mask. It feels like it's going against uh, some principle of liberty that's very important to me. Yeah, so I think that is, um, uh, I'm trying to understand this very special phenomenon Um, because actually many of my Chinese friends, family members, one of the questions they keep asking me is that they they cannot understand why people in the U.S., so many of them don't, wear face masks, even though the, the situation has already got quite bad. Uh, I think culture play quite important role. And also another important thing, like um, uh, when we talk about cultural misunderstanding, is that people always get used to, if they're trying to end something new, something, you know, it's never happened before. If they're trying to understand it, they need a reference. And for the Chinese people, for the Taiwanese, Korean people, um, it's much easier for them to, when the coronavirus uh, broke out, it's much easier for them to make reference because all the Chinese people, Taiwanese, Hong Kong, Japan, they suffered SARS in 2003. It's even, that was even worse than coronavirus. So they had a memory about that, and they 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 remembering about the the damage, and also at that time the people got used to wearing face mask, and for the yeah. Korean people their reference is MERS. It's coming from Middle East in 2015, so I think that's probably one of the reason because they have this reference. But for the people in the U.S., in the European countries, they don't have this kind of reference, easy reference. So for them, the reference is flu. So every year, every winter, so many people get caught by flu. 
but it's uh, normally you just get bad, you know, after a couple of weeks or even shorter. So people not, not really take it very serious. And also, I think if we talk about face mask, one of the very important reasons is that people here, just like you mentioned, if you're wearing a face mask, you somehow saying, I'm sick, right? I'm not doing well, I, I got problem. Uh, but so that is make a little bit difficult for healthy people to, um, to wear a face mask. But a face mask is very widely used in East Asian countries. You know, sometimes if you go to Japan, for example, you will say, you know, even in the normal times, there's no any, you know, disease or uh, not the flu season. Most people or majority people wearing face masks. They wearing face masks for multiple purposes and they, they get used to that. So that is also another example that culture play quite important yeah well and i think that like the the concept mm. of americans looking at the chinese or asian cultures and saying mm. they're wearing masks almost reinforces the liberty concept that i'm talking about because the american perception mm. of asian behavior or the or the behavior of many people living in a place mm. like china is mm. that they don't have choices they just do what they have to do and so like people look at that and I think they internalize it as, well, I don't want to be in a position where I am told what I have to do. Mm -hmm. So it's like um, almost reinforces that divide by seeing Asian countries uh, use masks a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I heard about a lot of this kind of discussion and it's true. You, you look at that, uh, one of the reasons may be that the, uh, uh, you know, East Asian countries, they are doing better in terms of uh, fighting with coronavirus is that um, they have a strong government. Or the government, like in China, they can force people to do a lot of things, which is uh, difficult to imagine for people here in this country. Um, so the government indeed have some very uh, strong measures which people here, many of them, most of them will consider this is a violation of human rights. Um, but during the pandemic, this kind of uh, uh, interventions might be also effective. But uh, um, we have to, I think, what I'm trying to explain to many of my colleagues is that um, even you have a powerful authoritarian government, it's not possible. You, you, we cannot just exaggerate the, the power of this type of government. Still, the people are willing to following the instructions. This part is actually coming from culture. The Confucian culture is actually played quite an important role because one of the, you know, the, the, the key feature of the Confucian culture is collectivism. We talked about collectivism when we were in the school. And uh, so in the collectivism culture, people are more kind of like a group. Um, they, they, they're trying to be a good member of a group. And they are willing, they're more willing to sometimes even sacrifice a little bit of their own rights or privilege of, of freedom to trying to work as a team, as a team member. So that kind of Confucian culture, collectivism culture is actually, you can say, you know, in Japan, Korea, Singapore, you know, people are 
there are different types of garment. So it's not just because of the garment. It's also one of the important reasons is actually this common culture they sharing. People, the community members are more willing to follow in the instructions. And one of another reason I think I probably need to mention is that in the Confucian culture and the collectivism culture, people are more kind of like um, respect the opinions from professionals. So you can say it's very interesting during this pandemic that in China, the couple of people became very famous in China are actually all doctors. So they became kind of like, a, uh, somehow it's like, um, you know, people respect them. So it's like uh, they following all the uh, instructions the doctors told them to do. And uh, here people normally, I think they don't have this kind of, uh, even though people normally also respecting professionals, but they don't think that they have to follow all the instructions a doctor telling them. So that's probably also another, you know, reason, you know. Well, is there, so, you know, my mm -hmm. impression of China is that if I were there and I decided I wanted to put a YouTube video up that said I don't wear a mask, that that would be treated very harshly, that the, that the ideas that you would be surrounded with in your day-to-day -day culture, what you read in the newspaper, what you see on YouTube, what's um, just in the general news, would give you no other um, expert opinion other than what the doctor says. Is that an accurate representation? Do they have counter ideas in China? Um yeah, I know that many people think about this way, especially, um, you know, China has a very different types of government and different politics. Uh, but we have to think this way. China is also is, uh, you know, currently, um, there's no much difference. People are also not getting most of the information from social media rather than from the official media or newspaper. Most of the young people, they never really read the hard copy of newspaper or printed by the government. They also get the news from the, the social media. And there's also many different various opinions being presented. Um, so they have the information, also they have the information from overseas. Um, but the, if we talk about the coronavirus, I think that uh, um, actually the social media and the information they got is actually, to some extent, also reinforce people that, um, you know, some of the behaviors so important, like the wearing mask and following the instructions, uh, stay at home. Uh, this kind of information, you know, um, it's not only just coming from the, the, the government, it's also coming from the media, from the, especially from the social media. So it's also, um, you know, happening to creating such kind of environment is that in China, if you're not wearing a face mask, for example, you consider this is kind of like a guilty. So that is a very special social discourse. So we can say that in each country that the domestic narrative actually played quite important role. And people knowing, you know, it's giving people a very strong, um, you know, uh, suggestion about what kind of behavior is good behavior. Yeah. 
When you and I first met, I had done some traveling and I had had experiences out in my life. But when I encountered you, we had this very interesting bond because I had still been seeing everything from a Western set of eyes. And when you and I encountered one another, we were looking at the same thing. We're living just outside of New York City. But you came to it from the Chinese perspective of a person that's been living in the United States, I think, by 10 years by the time you and I had met. Yeah. One of the questions that you asked very early in our in our friendship, uh, our teacher student relationship was, what do you think that the Chinese want? And I have used this question many, many, many times with people. If I've been out in Iowa or in the mountains, I've met people and they start talking about China and I say, what is it that you think the Chinese want? When you have asked that question over the years, what do you hear Americans say, and how is that different from what you think the Chinese people want? Mm -hmm. Yeah, actually, it's uh, interesting because I'm currently working on a new book, and uh, the initial title of the book is "Make China Great Again." <laughs> <laughs> so it's somehow it's like the uh, the same slogan. I actually published the article to compare. The President Donald Trump's make, make America Great Again and the Chinese President's slogan of the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. That's their slogan the, right now? Uh-huh, yeah. It's, the, it's even earlier than Make America Great Again. <laughs> yeah. So it's, uh, it's very similar. So to some extent, I think if you're asking me what Chinese want, um, it's, it's similar like people here. It's like what people, American people want. They, they want their country to be good, to be wealthy, to be strong. Um, they, they want to have a good life, good education, good health system. Uh, it's the same. Uh, but you probably remember that um, uh, I, I published a book that uh, during the time you were at Seton Hall, um, the book is uh, Never Forget National Humiliation. Yes, it's, it's right on my bookshelf. It's always yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. So what this book telling people is, uh, is basically um, uh, I made the argument. I said that if you're trying to understand Chinese people, you need to understand their historic memory. And historical memory is kind of like the secret key to open the inner world of the Chinese people. And one particular national experience, we know that national experience played a very important role for each country. And, you know, the, their world will, how do they understand their relationship with the world? And also maybe played also a fundamental role for people answering the question, what we want. So for the Chinese people, I argued in that book is that they got a very special national experience that was from the Opium War in 1840 until the end of World War II, the end of the war China with Japan, 1945. During this 100 years, China was suffered a lot of foreign invasions, and they consider this 100 years is kind of like they call it national humiliation. Americans have no idea about this. And I remember that yeah. you and I were writing articles at the time because yeah. the Beijing Olympics were going on. Yeah, exactly. And we were watching the torch move throughout the United States. And you would see people come out to protest mm. Chinese mm. human rights, Americans. 
Mm. And then you'd see Chinese college students show up and be counter protesters that were mm. pro Chinese, which mm. to an American was like smashing us against the wall because mm. the Americans thought, hey, look, we're trying to help you. We're trying mm. to make sure you have human rights. Why are you mm. trying to protect the torch and celebrate China when we all know that it's mm. this dark place, according to mm. the Americans? Mm. Yeah, so um, that's also like when we talk about like both of us, our work is trying to help the people to be better understood and to, to improve understanding. I think one of the major misunderstanding very often people have with each other is that we get used to understand another country from our own national experience, from our own institutional experience from our own cultural framework. So when people are trying to understand China, we, you know, because historic memory, like you mentioned, and I totally agree that it doesn't play very important role for American identity. Um, you know, people here is more kind of like looking forward rather than looking backward. So, so it's a little bit difficult for people here to understand China and understand Chinese by using the framework of historic memory. But uh, like I wrote an article, I said the title of the article is In China, History is Like a Religion. So history plays some role as religion because you know, one of the major difference between China and the US, like we talked before, is the majority of people here in the US, they believe in God or they have a religion beliefs. And the majority of Ch Chinese people, they don't have any religion beliefs. So that makes difference. They have different worldview. They say things differently. And uh, in China, because there's no like strong uh, religion beliefs among the people. So history sometimes played the role as kind of a religion. And uh, the historic memory is partially about this trauma. Just like uh, anybody, if you, you know, for any people, like one of my friends told me that for him, a car accident is such a trauma for him, played such important role to influence that his life after the accident. And for the Chinese people, this century of humiliation, this special national experience is also like the trauma, is like the car accident for my friend. So it's played a so important role to shaping Chinese people, how do they say the outside world? And Americans, and mm. like I would include myself in on this, the only mm. reason I got outside of my view that mm. I had before was mm. because I met you and then that, it made it much easier for me to get outside of it. But I think most mm. of Americans could not describe any of the tragedies that you're talking about happened to the Chinese people. They have no concept of the uh, mm -hmm. how the opium wars played out. They have no mm. concept of how the Japanese came in and the different mm. war treatments that happened no idea at all so these mm. concepts when they hear about the chinese having a hundred years of national humiliation being a central theme of mm. the childhood's education in the same way that yeah. washington yeah. had his cherry tree and abraham mm. lincoln you guys have that but we don't understand or know anything at all about mm. that perspective yeah so that is a uh, you know the uh, 
one of the major differences of sometimes I think that the, because this, uh, um, you know, people they don't understand each other's the major reference they use. The Chinese so often use history as a reference, but Americans they don't have this kind of uh, uh, tradition. So that very often caused many of the misunderstandings between them. You know, for example, like, uh, uh, you know, I'm currently working on facilitating a dialogue between the uh, Chinese scholars and American scholars over South China Sea. And Whoa. I found this very interesting <laughs> is that um, very often the dialogue is becomes the Chinese people always talking about history. They're talking about based on the old map, based on the history, you know. And American people not really consider history, you know, history is really an important part of the reference for them to understand the current situation of South China Sea. So they keep talking about, for example, the UN Conventional Law of the Sea and those kind of legal documents. So I, in my one of my article, trying to you know describe this. This is kind of like a, a dialogue over the different things. For the Chinese, it's about history. For the Americans, it's about the. It's it's kind of a dialogue between historical reality and or narrative reality and a legal reality. They are not on the same reality. So it becomes much difficult for them to communicate. Yeah. How do you bridge that? What do you do in order to make it? I mean, because it's not yeah. like all of the Americans are going to take Chinese history lessons and come to the yeah. same conclusions. And yeah. it's not like the Chinese will say, well, okay, these documents that are clearly in someone else's favor, we're going yeah. to agree to. So how do you get people to come to the table and come to a different decision? Yeah. First, I think even just get people sitting together, it's a success. They can talk, they can understand each other better. But I have to tell you that for my own experience, it's also a lot of frustration. It's really difficult to, for them to, to, to understand each other. Um, and also you will find, for example, you have conducted uh, um, you know, several conferences and uh, people are just uh, repeating the same kind of narrative. And uh, it's so hard for them to really to like we always say that you have to try other people's shoes and you can save from their eyes and i found it so difficult for the americans and chinese to try each other's shoes they not even like to try so and there's also a strong assumptions i think on the both side sometimes american participants were assuming you just use history as excuse. Um, you just trying to. That's you know, what I feel right now. That's exactly yeah. what I feel. Yeah. You're just trying to use an old map for your interest. And the Chinese has a strong belief that Americans just use the law or international uh, UN Convention law of the say we call it unclose. You just use UNCLOSE as excuse because the United States actually not ratify UNCLOSE. So the Chinese have strong belief that international law for you is just another tool you use for interviewing other country. 
So they refused to consider, even to listen to each other's opinion. So that's the major, I think, the major difficulties we have as a, when we're facilitating the dialogue. But I think it's important that we're trying to help them to understand, you know, it's really important to each other. Just like I'm trying to tell American people that uh, if you really, if you disagree Chinese assumption that Americans just use international law excuse, you should also considering the Chinese are also not just using history as an excuse. They really believe it. <laughs> they, and you have to think another way is for any country, we know there's some fundamental text, like a Bible, like a constitution, like the Chinese side, they have Confucianism. They have something this, that makes you and us, right? Like something that binds yeah. you together. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, besides that, education played a very important role. So one of my argument, I have to keep talking about this for over 10 years, is that I don't think South China can find a solution until, you know, if, until the countries involving the dispute, they consider change their domestic textbooks. If they don't change their textbooks, I don't say the possibility for them to reach agreement because almost each of the country involved the conflict. If you go to their you know, middle school, high school, if you read their geography book, history textbook, each country, China, Vietnam, Philippines, uh, Indonesia, they're telling their own people. Like in the Chinese textbook, I did, I did the research on Chinese textbook and Vietnam textbook. They're telling exact same thing to their people. South China, they belong to us. And we are the ocean state. We have been used since the ancient times. And the other countries, they are just invaders. So if we don't change this education, think about the group of people that are growing up, you know, after receiving this kind of education, it's difficult for them to change this mentality, to change their understanding. Yeah. But it so is that, extremely yeah. difficult in the U.S. to change yeah. education to, to be some monolithic thing. I mean, I think yeah. there are a lot of people that look at the U.S. system and yeah. say, well, our strength is in the fact that you have local control over curriculum. Now, it's not yeah. always the way that it plays out, but there's definitely at least 50 curriculums that are different. Yeah. Yeah. And anytime a national standard gets put in, everybody's going to fight to the death over what it can and can't say. So it ends up saying almost nothing at all. Whereas in the Chinese system, because it's more centrally managed, it probably doesn't change as often. But when it does, it changes everywhere all at once. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Actually, you point out a very important is this is also another thing that sometimes causes misunderstanding. Because like you said, in the U.S., maybe the education textbook not playing that important role in, compared with many other countries. Because in the U.S., like I often ask my students, how, what, what your history textbooks telling about this or telling about that event, and I found they very often they found they using the totally different textbooks. But you have to think it's for the American friends, you know, when you're trying to understand China, you have to think this way. 
in China for many decades, not from not just right now. People are using one single official textbook, so there's all the school, all the school in China, except some, you know, very small amount of the private international school, all the school using the same textbook published by the same official publication house. So the textbook is playing much much more powerful role. To shaping people's identity and understanding, especially like subject like history and geography, compared with the U.S., when people are using many different textbooks, and also in many of the even we talk about Japan, like I did the research about the, to compare the Chinese history textbook with Japanese textbooks.、Uh, You know, we know that the Japan is different with China, but still, in, even in Japan, there's only like seven or eight. Different textbook being used. It's not like like you mentioned in the U.S. Maybe fifty or more than that. So the textbooks play very important. Yeah, I think the American perception is that everyone else is、uh, susceptible to propaganda, but we don't have it here. And I think, in particular, the perception is that the Chinese people themselves. Uh, either are not allowed to to deny the prop like、uh, propaganda, but but also like kind of embrace it, just kind of see it that it's there and they believe everything.、Mm-hmm. What do the Chinese people think about the way that Americans get information? Do they think we are just as propagandized as we think they are? Um, yeah, um, they are. I think that、uh, actually the Chinese people are very interested in the U.S. So they knowing a lot of things in the U.S. Like they are very familiar with the NBA. They are very familiar with Hollywood movies.、Um, so very often people, even including scholars, will say the Chinese people are knowing much more about U.S. than general Americans knowing about China. Uh, but you know that I often,、uh, you know,、uh, almost every spring semester we have a study tour, and we often go to China. And very often, my American students, the first time that when they arrive China, they will find it's so different, so different with what they saw before they come in,、um, and also because you know. For example, before the trip, very often we have the preparation meeting, and I'm telling them said that、uh, you you should know that you are not able to use YouTube, you are not able to use Facebook, Twitter,、uh, WhatsApp, you weren't able to use all the social media in China. So I think most of students, after they knowing about the the sort of vow, the what kind of country it is. And they even have some some kind of concern of personal safety or something. The all the special kind of like、uh, excitement of visiting a very different country. But after this, you know, they put their foot on China, and they will find it's so different, different than what they saw. Of course, yes, the people are there are not allowed to use this social media I mentioned. But they still have many of their own channels of communication,、uh, channels of information. So they know a lot of things about the world, and they are also、um, 
you know, they don't have the, uh, you know, a lot of freedoms to do a lot of things, but they also have a lot of freedoms that to do many things they like to do. So the young people, there is no big difference compared with young people here. Um, and also, I think many of Chinese people also think that because, um, you know, people in China, they knowing about the information they get from the official media or the other channels might be wrong. Like you said, might be propaganda. So they always being mindful. So they are more sensitive to that. So when they hear a news, when they get information, they trying to not believe it first. But people here, people in the China, sometimes they think that maybe American people, they don't have this level of mindfulness. So they probably also being easily being influenced by, by me, by certain opinion leaders, or by some, you know, uh, narratives, the domestic narratives played such an important role for them because they normally, you know, not questioning about the, you know, this, uh, like the Chinese young people, they may be more mindful about that. So there's this kind of discussion. I heard a lot about this kind of discussion. Yeah. You know, it's kind of natural for people to, when they go to a place, they view their people as the good guys and the new place where they're at, at first it's novel and exciting and then it becomes really confusing and kind of isolating when, when the newness is done and you're tired that you can't speak the language or, or that people can carry on conversations without you. All these other things are going on. But eventually you can start to come up on the other side and say, okay, I, I understand where these people are coming from or what they're doing. But in the back of your mind, you kind of always have the narrative of like, my people are the good guys and these are something else. You live in a very weird environment because you grew up in China. Uh, you spent part of your professional career there and then you came to the United States, became a professor, had a family and you're here. Do you have that switch of good guys and bad guys? Will your children have that same switch of good guys and bad guys or good team, bad team, my team, the other team? How does that work if you've integrated and moved to another place? Mm -hmm. uh, for myself, I don't think I have this uh, identity crisis. And for many years, actually, I think we talked before, I'm kind of um, quite comfortable of uh, being uh, like you, you described that uh, I, I grew up in another country and moving to a new country. And uh, I, I, for now, I almost spend the same amount of time in both countries. So I'm familiar with both sides. Um, so I'm quite comfortable my role, whether as an educator, a researcher, you know, to play the role somehow is like a bridge between the two cultures. Or sometimes, like I mentioned to my class, I think I, I put it in my teaching philosophy statement, <laughs> is that I consider myself, my job is to some extent as a cultural interpreter. 
you know, the two countries, they might need, when they communicate, like when I organize my conference on such China, say, I always got trying to get the best uh, interpret because that is so important for the, the scholars from the two countries to Explain understand Explain the difference between a translator and an interpreter because most people don't have that subtle knowledge of the difference. Mm. Yeah, so... So, like in the in the conference, they, we need the interpreter to help people to understand the the other people's what they are saying. So we we sometimes do this uh, spontaneous simultaneous translation, simultaneous translation. So so people sometimes assume that it's uh, you know the, the the translation is easy, but actually it's not. Especially when we have some cultural concepts. Yeah, so, that's the difference between a translator and an interpreter is that an interpreter mm. is given the power, the social license to say, he's saying these words, but mm. the concept when it gets translated to another culture means this mm. other thing. Mm. And there's sometimes when you hire a translator and you say, just mm. say exactly what I'm saying mm. to him. Yeah. But in this case, you've got to have somebody with a lot more nuance. There's a lot less interpreters yeah. than there are translators. Yeah. And sometimes I'm telling my participants from both sides, uh, not assuming you're, you're saying anything and the translator or interpreter can translate 100% to the other side. And uh, you have to think about, you know, you, you need to sometimes the, the speaker yourself need to help the other side to better understand you. And also, when I say cultural interpret, cultural interpreter for myself is that I'm not working. My profession is not. I'm not serving as any kind of translator or interpreter role, but I'm trying to helping the two countries to better understand the other sides, their frame of reference, their mentality, their world their culture, their frames they used. So for many years, I think I'm quite comfortable with this kind of role. I'm not, I, I never really say the things like bad guy, good guy. I'm just saying try. they have the difficulties to understand each other. Maybe I could provide some help to, to, to make them easier, to make the things easier for them to understand each other. Because very often, misunderstanding caused by miscommunication. Um, but in recent years, like I, we talked earlier before that we, I mentioned, I'm, I became more and more frustrating. And I found that, um, um, you know, the, the, the understanding becomes more difficult. And it's becoming the more difficult between China and U.S. Yeah. Why? It's, it's a tragedy. It's really a tragedy because um, if we think about the when U.S. and China established the uh, formal diplomatic relations in 1979, uh, it's almost you know <clears throat> um, uh, 40 years ago. It's over 40 years ago. So at that time, that like my professor told me, my professor in the U in the U.S. University told me that he was, uh, she was uh, the first group the U.S. Uh, uh, you know, State Department sent to China. So when she was a PhD student, when she studied China, at that time they had to rely on the, 
you know, the newspaper they got from China to understand about China. And the newspaper normally coming one week late. So like today you got the Chinese newspaper one week ago. And they learned China this week. <clears throat> but today, the reason I said it's a tragedy is that today we have, we have internet. We have so many channels of communication. But the understanding and communication became so difficult between the two countries. So that's the reason I said it's a tragedy. What do you think is causing the difficulty to understand one another? Is it the fact that there's so much information that it's all noise and we don't know what to pay attention to? Or, I mean, I think there are a lot of Americans that think many of our current problems are because China is pushing these problems into our social media. They're, they're trying to create the divisions that, that, that Americans have by uh, overexpressing them. Is this going on on both sides? Do both sides perceive that the other one is doing this to them? Yes, it's true. They blame each other. They consider a lot of bad things is coming from another country. They believe that the other country is taking aggressive behavior and my side, my country is just the responsive. So this is very interesting. This, they actually have a quite a very similar, um, you know, uh, understanding to each other is that they can say that the other side is aggressive. And my country, we are just making our responding to the other country's bad, aggressive behavior. Um, and there's many reasons to cause this uh, tragedy. So sometimes, like I said, this is like a Shakespearean tragedy. We all know the reason. We all know something bad to happen, but there's no way for us to stop it. Um, I think one of the fundamental misunderstanding or fundamental reason is probably that each side they have some major judgment about another country's intention. And uh, to some extent, I can say that both countries is making the biggest strategic mistake for both countries because they are making some misjudgment about another country's intention. So for example, many people in the U.S. consider uh, China's uh, national strategy is to uh, replace the United States, to be a dominant power of, China, of the world. And uh, many Chinese believe the United States has a master strategy, a master plan to, um, you know, to overthrow the Chinese government and to, uh, you know, uh, uh, to, to contain China. So both sides have this kind of a, a major big judgment about another country. But uh, they probably, you know, can find a lot of, each side can find a lot of evidence to support their assumption. But uh, I think it's, uh, it's too early to make this uh, judgment for both of them. And also it's... Um, you know, you can find evidence like you can, the American people can find some Chinese indeed to make this kind of argument. And Chinese side can also find some Americans maybe really think that way. But 
you have to make the difference between whether it's individual or small group of people's opinion or whether this is commonly accepted by the general public or the majority of people and became a national strategy. I think <clears throat> that's make big difference. Yeah. Yeah, the, 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 and that leads back to the question that I was talking about in the beginning, the question where you can ask somebody and they will almost always give you an interesting answer, which is, what do you think the Chinese people want? Because the more news that you read, the more you'll say things, well, they want a new Silk Road so they can cut us out of trade. They are in war with India. They're killing um, people at the border. The the Uyghur problem that's going on, yeah. like the, the, the Americans believe there's a major human rights uh, conflict there. And they have similar things that they perceive of us doing in the same way. Mm. Yeah. Uh, like I mentioned, I'm organizing the, uh, the scholar discussions between US and China. So a few, uh, several weeks ago, we had some interesting discussion about what re recently happened in the US. We know that recently that uh, there's, uh, in some cities of the US, there's demonstrations, protestings, and uh, about the um, you know, racial injustice, those kind of things. Um, and these issues, these recent happenings has been widely reported in China. So, for example, like myself, I got a lot of my, uh, you know, friends or people I know, the family members, uh, we actually, we are not really, uh, you know, very often regularly in contact, but uh, they concerned about my safety. So they were right to me and ask me, are you okay? Are you safe? Because for many of the Chinese people, the, from reading this, this news, from watching it on the TV, they believe the entire United States now is somehow in revolution. And uh, one of the, um, the Chinese participants of my dialogue, he asked the question to the American scholars, he somehow to make the comparison of what happened now in the US with cultural revolution in China in 1960s. So he thinks this is very similar. Oh. And I know that many, <laughs> many people in China is actually consider what happened now in the US is kind of like a cultural revolution. So the American scholars disagree, said, no, how can you compare with that? This is totally different. But uh, you know that just like uh, going back, what we when we talk about wearing face mask, we mentioned about the importance of reference. So for the Chinese people, they make the reference with Cultural Revolution. For them, it's much easier to understand. And a lot of American people, when they think about today's China, they make reference with Soviet Union. But you have to know China and today's China with Soviet Union in 1960s, 1970s is totally different. So tell me about that. When you say it's totally different, what do you mean? So for example, at that time, the Soviet Union is highly ideological. They have a strong ideology. 
Today, many people, they probably assume China also has Chinese people or Chinese society is also highly ideologically. Or there's a communist socialism ideology. I think that is one of the major misunderstanding between the two sides. And uh, if you visit China, I think many of my students, they noticed that the, the market economy and how the people, the people focus, the most of the people, they focus not really about ideology issues, but also, but really about how to make, you know, uh, make money, how to have a better life. It's, it's no difference with people here. You know, so, that is fascinating because I've been reading a lot about the Soviet mm. Union and how it came about and your assessment about that, where they be the people became ideologically possessed by saying we want equality and we want to uh, take the people that have too much and take it away from them and give it to other people. But what you're saying is the new China, the China that exists today, those people aren't sitting there talking about equality all the time. They're instead saying, how can I get my family ahead? How can we make business yeah. decisions? Make So what happened in between the 1960s to today that made it so because this the concept of the free market does not appear to be a natural one it seems to be one that must be cultivated yeah it's uh, it's actually after the you know um, many people when they discussing about today's china they very often they forgot about you know what china has experienced during these 40 years uh, or during the recent three or four decades. So, for example, I often ask my students this question, do you know the per capita GDP for China in 1989? Can you guess? I can tell uh, you today's per capita GDP of China is 10,000. 10,000 US dollars. So what was it, 5,000? It's 304. Wow. Yeah. So that, I think when you make this reference, you understand better about China's national experience. In 1989, per capita GDP for Chinese is 304. China is one of the poorest country in the world. I remember when I was an overseas student in England in my master program, my professor asked me a question about China's per capita GDP. He didn't know about that. And I was uh, not willing to tell him because it's too low. I think it's, uh, it's quite, uh, um, you know, um, uh, so I said, I, I don't remember. Um, yeah, but uh, from 1989, from 304 to 10,000, it's, it's happened. staggering. It's, it's, not, yeah. it's, not, it's, it's not even one that a regular person could understand. I mean, that'd be like taking a Kenyan villager and giving them an apartment building to be living in and running water yeah. and electricity. And yeah. It's huge. Yeah. yeah. So you have to think about these two numbers when you think about China. This is the real China that, uh, you know, the recent 30 years, the country is actually focused mainly on economic development. 
They focus on commerce, they focus on economy, they focus on making their life better. They, you, you know, like my students, they, the most exciting thing for them is to visiting the ninth, uh, you know, in the evening, to visit the market, the ninth market in the evening and say so many people are shopping, are selling something, are doing business. So the lively, you know, life of the people, local people there. So until now, China is a country that, like I said, is a focus on economic development. Of course, if you pay attention, only the official newspapers, the official media, or some of the narratives, the, the reports from the, you know, uh, from the from some of the international media, people maybe believe that people there because it's a still communist party, it's still the, you know, the socialism, Marxism ideologies, still the official ideology. Uh, but uh, the reality is quite different. Um, of course, today's the, the current administration is more ideological compared with the former administration five years ago or seven years ago. It's true. But um, there's a major difference like compared with today's China with Soviet Union. Yeah, even in, in compared with the economic development, what's the ordinary people, the general public, what they're doing, what's their focus, what's the, you know, the, the, their life, their daily life looks like, you can say there's a major difference. Yeah. So when you think about the two powers believing that the other side is, uh, yeah. you know, not playing by the rules and yeah. you referred to it as a Shakespearean tragedy, where do we go from here? Is this something that unfolds and the two countries actually fight each other? Does this mean that we have some sort of more economic fallout? Where do you see this going? Yeah, it's, that's the reason I, I, I use the term Shakespearean tragedy. Is that I really not say, I'm not really, um, you know, saying, you know, very... I probably pessimistic, but I think many people in the field also like me. We, you know, it's uh, when we say it's a Shakespeare tra tragedy, is that we know something bad to going to happen, but there's no way to stop it. It's both side being uh, motivated, manipulated is the wrong word, motivated by nationalism, populism, by some extreme ideas. And um, uh, both sides has the same type of uh, top leader, ambitions and, uh, um, and trying to, uh, just like we talked about their slogan. Wait, even. wait, wait, you, you're yeah. saying like, uh, this is, this will be shocking. So you're saying there are parallels between Xi Jinping and and Donald Trump? Yeah, there are a lot of similarity. Yeah, there are a lot of similarity. This but would be I something don't... completely not understood by other people. Like, this is a shocking statement to me. <laughs> I, I, I didn't uh, expect you you think this way, yeah. But they indeed, they have a lot of similarities. Just like we said that they have the very similar slogans. And... Uh, um, and also, I think that the uh, many things between these two countries. So I think some of the scholars of uh, 
international relations already made the statement saying that many of the today's problems between the two countries are actually caused by the two leaders. Um, so if it's a different president, things might be different. So, but of course it's not, we cannot just blame this uh, specific leader for each society. They have the reason coming out they have the reason became the president. They have their domestic logic, domestic, you know, reasons for that. Well, they we have used also to talk a lot about Putnam's two-level games, where if you yeah. want to be a president, whether it's President Xi or, or mm. President Trump, you mm. have to get the domestic board to agree with you. Yes. So you're playing a yeah. chess game there, but every yeah. piece you move on the domestic board moves mm. a piece on the international mm. board, and you begin to forget that those people have to do things to play on both boards at the same time. So if you're watching them play them, mm. it mm. seems like completely bizarre behaviors, but mm. it makes sense. But to me, mm. the, the Chinese president is nearly silent. I never see him in a place where he's speaking. I, I never watch his speeches translated to me. He's almost mute. Okay. So that's also the reason I'm saying very often we, uh, we have the uh, misunderstanding about another country is that we hear more about our own leaders, their activities, their speech, their, you know, uh, their point of views. We, and actually the Chinese leader is actually very, they, he made a lot of uh, comments, a lot of, uh, uh, you know, he changed the China you know, in, uh, both institutionally and also uh, in terms of the policy. So he made a lot of difference. So, um, you know, the leaders, they have, they play quite important role in any society, any types of the government, their personal preference, especially their personal ambitions, you know, um, sometimes it's also a tragedy when you got the leaders, they, especially the major powers, and uh, you got the two leaders at happen to be the same time, they are both of them has a very strong personal agenda or very strong ambitions. And then the clash of ambitions becomes difficult to avoid. The clash of ambitions. I, I think that's <laughs> a very good title. Well, uh, it, it's, it's very interesting to call you Dr. Wong. We've been so close for so long. Uh, this has been great for us to start this up. I would like to have you on more frequently. I think there's always going to be news between these two cultures, and it took us a little while to get this started. But now that we've had you on, I'd love to have you on more to talk about this uh, this and negotiations and what else is going on in the world. You're welcome. And I, I'm happy to, to talk just like we talked the. Um, you know, when, we're, when you were in, at Satan House, so we have a lot of dialogue about the two countries and we are helping each other to understand better about another country. Yeah, so, and you know you, yeah. you know, you had mentioned something about the, that we thought that the internet was going to make it much easier for if yeah. we're going to go to war with Saudi Arabia or Iraq or China, that we yeah. would be able to get on the phone and, and talk with people from there, but it doesn't happen. So conversations like this, I think, are the first step towards making those kinds of things happen. Yeah, it's true. And also because the internet, emerge of the internet that and social media, people, you know, at the social media, you notice that people normally follow someone they have similar opinion 
or similar interest like you. So that makes people, you know, your uh, source of information became very selective. So uh, people with the same opinions, they actually reinforce each other. And they, they, they don't have the opportunity to take the alternative opinions. So that's also the important reason that we need to do dialogue more often. Yeah. Well, you'll love this. I started uh, a network uh, from people that listen to this podcast. And basically, it's to come in and people can uh, practice their communication skills. So if they want to yeah. practice for you know, a job interview or they want yeah. to put up a speech. But the craziest thing that's happened is that none of these people came knowing each other. So yeah. their opinions are all different. And so you see these people having conversations about topics that you're like, oh, I never thought about that. And it's just that they, they come from slightly different orientations and it makes a big difference in the ideas that you come across. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's always interesting when you speak with people, they have different background. Yeah. So if people wanted to get a hold of you, if they wanted to hear more about your China work or uh, read some of your books, what's the best way to look you up? Uh, actually, I don't use much, you know, a lot of social media, and, but uh, um, yeah, I think the best way is that uh, to send my publications and I, I hope this book will coming out soon, but uh, yeah. As soon as your book is published, we'll do another interview again. That'll be great. Sure, sure. All right. It was good to see you. Yeah, great. Thank you.